Okay. Well, it's exciting. We've got some people getting baptised today. That's good. And so what I wanted to talk about today was um, what it is to be Pentecostal. So I know that a lot of people have um, come from different backgrounds that are here today. And so I know that Warren's sitting there from an Anglican background. I know Rob's sitting there from a Brethren background, and they're part of our leadership team. But how many of us have come from, originally come from a traditional type church background? All right. How many have come from, have been, you know, you've come straight into a Pentecostal church or a charismatic church right from day one? Not many. So there's the change. What about um, uh, uh, reformed type churches, that sort of? I see that hand. We can pray for you. No, it's right. <laughs> Marielle, you just fit in here perfectly. So it just goes to show that we all come from different backgrounds and that happens at different times. And so um, my church background was I grew up in a traditional church, so it was a Methodist church, and my parents took us kids along there. Now, it was a terrible experience. Um, when we got to church, there was just a handful of old people, and the other ones, you had to give them a nudge every now and then to make sure they were still breathing. Uh, and there was one family of uh, mum, dad, and four kids, which we didn't gel with, so the only people we could be friends with we didn't really get on with. You know, when you sit on one side of the church, they sit on the other side of the church. I found out years later, and this is probably why we didn't get on with them, because we're picking up something off them, the father became the grandmaster of the um, Waihora Masonic Lodge. So the church I was in had people that had pretty much done their lives and had the devil in it. And you wonder why I didn't enjoy growing up in that church. So my parents started going to um, a Lincoln, a Baptist church in Lincoln when I was about 13, 14, and I'm like, you're killing me, you're killing me. I had to put up with this all these years, and now we're going to this other church. I am a teenager. I do not want anything to do with church. And so I kicked out a little bit at that point where it's like, I'm just going to hold in here, and I've got a wee bit more on that story later on because I'm nearly old enough to say, no, I'm not going anymore. So today I just want to look at the tension that we have in embracing the new and releasing the old. You know, anybody done relay racing at school? You know, and you're belting down the track and belting down the track, and as the person's passing the baton, they don't let it go. It slows you right down and you don't win the race. And, and so the tension, I like the word tension. The tension has a mental, emotional strain. And sometimes just in our Christian journey, there's a mental and emotional strain just getting to, to work through stuff because Jesus is always doing something new. Did you realize that? You know, he's not, what, he's not doing today what he did 100 years ago. Well, he is actually, but, he's, but we ebb and flow in when God is doing things. And there's always a tension of, why do I accept it? Do I go with it? Or do I hold out and go, no, nah, nah, I'm not going that way? And so the, the scripture, like my, the word today is many believe, but the, my opening scripture is this one here. So it says, so when Jesus said, when you have lifted, uh, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I am doing nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, it says this, many believed. And I like that. I like the fact that when, when the word of God is spoken, many believe. And then we go to um, 
Peter's first sermon. You know, he's just been filled with the Holy Spirit, if you know the story. And then he gets up and speaks. And what happens? 3,000 people come to the Lord. It says this in Acts 2.41. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the church that day. That's many. 3,000 in my books is many. And then you get another scripture like the um, Samaritan woman at the well. I don't know if I put these ones up. Did I? Oop. No, I didn't, sorry. Uh, in John 4.39, Jesus comes and he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well and he tells her that, hey, you know, if you're married, she says, oh, no. And he says, you're right, you've had five husbands and the person you're with now is not your husband. So it says this, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. So many believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And he told, he told me everything I ever did. And it says also that many more believed when they came and heard Jesus as well. So there we go. Many people believe. And so our expectation is that many people, or it should be, many people are out there ready to believe. So Jesus is changing the religious culture of the time. I've got a lot of words to say today. He's, he's changing the religious culture. He's, he's come at a time when the scribes and Pharisees are doing their thing, a lot of rules and regulations. Jesus comes and he just cuts right across all that. And he causes some major problems here for the scribes and Pharisees. And so he brought tension. It's like, okay, I don't know if I want what he's bringing or if I'd rather stay in what I've got. I know what I've got, but I don't know what he's bringing. I, and, and there's this tension. You know, has anybody felt that when you first, like you guys that came into a Pentecostal experience, or the Holy Spirit experience at some stage, and you were, we were like, oh, is this, is this the way it's supposed to be? There's a tension. I like the word Tension. I just want to say it all the time. And then we go to this one here. Acts 2, 4, uh, 2 verses 1 to 4. And we, this is the Pentecost. Like you say, where does Pentecost come from? The Pentecostal church gets its name from this scripture, basically. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like, like the blowing of a violent wind. Look at that. I thought, hey, it's the sound. The sound of like a blowing wind. It's not a blowing wind. I always thought, you know, it was a blowing wind. <laughs> through the walls and everything, but it's not. It says, the sound was like a blowing wind, of a violent blowing wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they, they saw what they seemed to be tongues of fire that separated them and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now that is, it's like, that, they've been watching Jesus do stuff and now all of a sudden this has come on them and they're doing things they haven't done before. I mean, that's just amazing. One thing about being Pentecostal is that we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we believe in healing, as Dre just said before. We believe in miracles. We believe in word of knowledge. We believe in um, discernment. We believe on, in faith. You know, there's all these things, all these spiritual gifts we believe on. We, we believe they are for today. Jesus brought radical revival. And if you, put it, if you think of that, you think of what you've had to go through and you've adjusted to. Man, back in those days, Jesus brought a revival and a radical revival that would have just thrown a lot of people. Would you be fair to say that you and I can lose spiritual ground or, uh, in Jesus when things aren't going so good? How many people during COVID feels that they lost a little bit of ground spiritually? My hand's up. That's good. You five and I, we will get together and pray for each other. 
I felt, I mean, I had a grief season on top of that as well, so it wasn't so good. But there was times where I thought, I just don't feel confident anymore. I don't feel like I've got, um, you know, I'm a pastor, and it's like I don't feel that I have really got what I, it takes to do what I'm trying to do. And, and uh, through this last couple of seasons, it's been hard. I felt like I've lost, I lost something of myself and who I was in God through that season. But at the same time, if I can lose ground then I believe the church can lose ground. And so as a, as a, a, a congregation, we can become very like religious and then we, we settle into just doing church, coming along, expectations aren't that high, not expecting great things to happen, not expecting God to actually visit us, meet with us, change us, um, inspire us, convict us. And so we, we, the church settles. And this is where I want to go now is into revivals. Where, where if we have settled with it like a religious template of this is how church goes, then we accept not very much. We don't have an expectation that God's going to do a whole lot more than what we're expecting. So, Jesus came not for religion, but for relationship. So here we go. This is, now look, this is in no means an extensive um, study on revival because when I started into this I was, I was actually starting to get quite interested in it and I started poking around reading stuff and then I realised that this is a lot bigger than I'm going to do justice today so all you theologians just be careful I am not this is from my point of view a wee bit of background and I've missed a whole heap of stuff I know I have but uh, you would be here until next Sunday if we were to go down this one. So I want to start with the Azuzu Street Revival in 1906. Bearing in mind I've just missed the Welsh Revival a couple of years before that. So here we go. Let's do some reading. The Azusa Street Revival was a historic series of revival meetings that took place in Los Angeles, California. It was led by William J. Seymour, an African-American preacher. The revival began on April the 9th, 1906 and continued roughly till 1915. On the night of April the 9th, 1906, Seymour and seven men were waiting on God in Bonnie Bray Street. When suddenly, as though hit by a bolt of lightning, they were knocked from their chairs to the floor, and the other seven men began to speak in tongues and shout out loud, praising God. The news quickly spread, and the, cities were stirred, uh, and the city was stirred, crowds gathered, and a few days later, Seymour himself received the Holy Spirit. Services were moved outside to accommodate the crowds who came from all around. People fell down under the power of God as they approached. People were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the sick were healed, and the sinners received salvation. To further accommodate the crowds, an old dilapidated two-story frame building at 312 Azusa Street in the industrial section of the city was secured. In this humble Azuzu Street mission, a continuous three-year revival occurred, and it came, became known around the world as the, the, this revival was characterized by, by spiritual experiences accompanied with testimonies of physical healing miracles, worship service, and speaking in tongues. The participants were criticized by, by listen to this one. The, the participants were criticized by some secular media and Christian theologians for behaviors considered to be outrageous and unorthodox, especially at the time. And today the revival is considered by historians to be the primary catalyst for the spread of Pentecostalism in the twentieth century. That's a mouthful. Give me a clap for that big read. Whew. I had one trip. Alright. I thought they, they were criticised by the media 
and the theologians. Okay, who do we get criticised by when something starts happening in the church today? Same place where the criticism comes from. But what, what I like there is that this was 120 years ago and this radical stuff happened. I mean, you imagine if you were there and these things start. Imagine if you were one of the seven and you all got knocked off your chairs. I would be listening. I would be taking notice. Sometimes when, when it comes to um, the spiritual realm, sometimes it offends our head. Anybody get that? It's like you see something, you're just not sure that, I don't know if I want to accept that. I'm offended by that behavior or what's happening there because I'm not used to it. But often when our heads are being offended, our hearts are being drawn. And so we've got this tension again by our hearts going, whoa, there's something in this, but our head becomes offended. When I first went to um, the New Life Centre in Leaston, my parents had gone there when I was working at Methvin and my, my three siblings gave their hearts to God. And I was like, um, no, I was out of church now. I'm, I'm working, I'm away from home, I'm out of church. And so I ended up going, um, going away. When I came home, my mum says, hey, do you want to come to church? And I was like, uh, not really. But I ended up going because I was compliant. And uh, I wasn't ready for what I saw. I saw young people dancing. I saw people, you know, the old, the old pen, you know, we don't do much of that here. Come on, I see a few nodding heads. We could break out break out you know sometimes it's like you think you know if you dance it offends my head when I see you dance it excites my spirit what fast songs have we got Michaela just everybody's itching eh? but I but I I saw this and I saw hands raised oh my gosh you mean to say you reach for God I heard speaking in tongues. I heard um, the worship team is extended worship and um, just free singing. We're just people in the congregation would start singing. And I'm like, sheesh. And in my head, I'm like, it's too much. Overload, overload. All my lights were going and it's really like steam start. You know, I was like, nah, I can't handle this. I get home and I said to mum, she said, what do you think? It says, I'm never going back again. Ah. I could not comprehend what was going on because it was like my head was offended that, that how could this be? I, I, this, is, this is not what I thought it would be. And then about two months later, I came back home and mum said again, would you like to come to church again? And I'm like, oh. But there was something, I guess, that drew in my spirit that I was like, okay, I'll give it a go. But guess what? This time I go and I'm completely different. Um, um, I was in a different place. I knew that what was coming so I could come in, okay, I know this stuff's going to happen, but this time my eyes are different. I'm, I'm seeing things. And I'm watching girls, I'm watching calf worship. And her, she, had, she had a whole ream of sisters, and there was other girls. There was all these gorgeous girls. And then there's policemen and farmers, young fellas, and I'm thinking, what are they doing, you know? And I'm looking around thinking, this, there's something about this that is real. There's something about this that is, that is actually drawing me in. I can feel I'm getting drawn in here, even though my head wasn't comprehending it. And then I was, at the time, I was, I was a bit lonely at Methodist, and I joined up with my cousins. We went to their youth group, which happened to be a, a Methodist youth group. Um, and the reason I went there is because I ended up becoming boyfriend-girlfriend with the minister's daughter. That's a bit awkward, because if you're in that situation, you've got to go to church, because you can't get out of it. You know, you're not viewed very well as a boyfriend if you don't go to church with their daughter. And so that was okay. You know, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm having a spiritual awakening. 
So I go back there and I talk to my uncle and aunties and cousins and then I talk to her, uh, my girlfriend's parents and they're all like, oh, be careful, Lyndon, be careful. Be careful of this stuff, you know, that's the Old Testament stuff. I know it's in the Bible, but did you know somebody I heard the other day, one of our relatives is into this stuff, he was on the phone and he prayed for someone over the phone. And I'm like, oh, that's shocking. Shocking. Who's guilty of doing that right now? Hallelujah. But yet that was real. They said it genuinely. It was like, oh, Linda. And then I'm saying, so what's this um, um, speaking in tongues? And, and the minister's like, oh, Lyndon, no, no, be careful. You know, that stuff there happened in the Bible, but it was only at the Acts and, you know, in, in the upper room. And, and I just had all this, like, it was like they were, no, no, no. And they were all good, you know, religious people I thought and I thought they'd be happy about me trying to find God because I'm going out with his daughter next week I go down to see them again from Methvin and and uh, my girlfriend dropped me it's over I was like, what persecution <laughs> it's persecution for my faith it's okay because she married my cousin I still get to see her That could have been really embarrassing, I reckon, but anyway, I was glad I was such a good fella. Then it came to Smith Wigglesworth in 1922, and this is what Kristen Williams spoke about too. It says, the crowds in the town hall grew from 800 to 1600 and finally 3,000 on the third night. Uh, I'll give it to you to listen to look at. And from then onwards, um, people were turned away each night. On some nights, there were at least a thousand who could not gain entrance. It was then that a Salvation Army officer stood on the town hall steps and preached to those outside. In at least one meeting at the town hall, there were as many as 500 responded to the gospel, uh, to the gospel message. Throughout Wigglesworth Stay in New Zealand, there were over 2,000 that made decisions for Christ. The interesting part here, listen to this last bit here. The entire place was charged with a living, pulsating, yet indefinable power. Come on! That's just not religion. Because, you know, when you come into a place where the Spirit of God is, then you sense something, you feel something, you expect something. And uh, you're starting to see a bit of a common theme in these revivals, aren't you? And then we go to Billy Graham. In the first half of 1959, Billy Graham and his associate evangelist, Leighton Ford, I went to one of his crusades, actually, just before, I, as I got saved. Grady Wilson and Joseph Blinko held crusades in New Zealand and Australia, which attracted large audiences. More than 160,000 people attended the seven-day Auckland crusade at Carlow Park between 29th of March and 4th of April, and nearly 60,000 flocked to the Athletic Park in Wellington. And then 133 turned up to Lancaster Park during an eight-day crusade, which began on the 1st of April. Graham himself preached in the last two meetings of each city. These services were relayed by landline to public gatherings in Dunedin and other centres. I mean, that's a lot of people. If you're thinking of rugby games, that's a lot of people. And the thing is, what about revivals? Because what happens is it's like a fire. You know, you get a big bonfire in dry conditions, and you start other fires. And so these crusades were like a big bonfire that was sparking and then starting little fires. So when people went away from these crusades, it spread. There was an enthusiasm, there's a realness in their walk and their relationship that it spread like wildfire. And then so you think it wasn't just those people that got ministered to or touched or became, you know, Christian. 
there was the effect, the cause and effect. You know, when you are involved in something like that, you can't help but share it when you go away. These numbers should come as no surprise because a 1956 census found that only 0.5% of the adult New Zealanders claim to have no religious belief. 0.5%. In 2013 census, 42% claim to have no religious belief. And in the 2018 New Zealand census, 2,240,601 people exactly don't believe in religion or Jesus or God. All right? Remember that one. 2,264,601. One thing I've noticed uh, when you live in areas like probably any rural areas around here, you guys are townies. Um, I'm a rural person. I live at Leeston. Proud of it. I've got land. Views of the mountains, you guys have got fences and palings. Um, I feel sorry for you, um, but it's all right. But when you live in a rural communities like where we come from, you know the first things that were built in those communities, and I'm not talking townships, I'm just talking communities. They built a hall and a, and a church. And so you've got all these halls and churches in the most ridiculous places, just out in the boonies, nowhere around. And there's a hall and there's a church. And when you've got a church, you've got a cemetery. And that was happened. You know, when, when they, the town planners planned Rolleston, how much land was put aside for churches, guys? What was that? None. How things have changed. What used to be a priority is now no longer a priority. And so the thing that's exciting in Rolleston is there's about 12 different congregations meeting today. I tell you, you know, it's like the revenge of the, what is it? Something, Trifford. It's like, we are coming to get you. And we've got 12 churches. Sorry, kids. We've got uh, around 12 churches now that are beginning to get established and beginning to grow in our community in Rolleston here. What man thought they could do without, God's like, no, I'm going to raise up churches. And you watch it happen. It's an exciting time to be in Rolleston. If you're not in Rolleston, I'm from Leeston, and I'm still excited for Rolleston. And then we come to the, oh, I got there quick, charismatic renewal, which was the spiritual awakening in the church. Now, um, you, uh, probably a bunch of you guys know this now. You're probably part of that. But this was in the 1960s through to about 1980. Um, I, I always wondered, what, how does charismatic and Pentecostalism go together? But just the word charismatic comes from the word charisma. And the word charisma means um, compelling attractiveness or charm. And so when this came, it was like there was just a real spiritual hunger in those times. How many people were involved in the charismatic renewal? That yeah, you, you could see you were part of it, your, your parents were part of it, you, whatever. Um, and I can remember... Um, that coming when my parents all of a sudden decided they wanted to go to Lincoln Uni, go to these big meetings, and they were obviously hearing great speaking, and there was a, just an electrifying um, presence of God, and people were just going in droves, and they'd be asking their friends, and they'd be going, and each night be more going. And, and I, I'm like a teenager, I'm about 14 at the time, and I'm thinking, no, my parents are losing it, they're becoming spiritual. I was trying to leave home, and now my parents are getting all into this stuff and my younger brother he went along as an 11 year old got radically touched by God gave his heart to God he was such a Christian me and my sister beat it out of him we managed to stop it we tried to stop it but he left school went to YWAM ah anyway he was so Christian and uh, you know that shaped his life 
Because, you know, in the end of his life, you know, he left a legacy based on what he had encountered with Jesus. And he had a close relationship with God. When he came back after we'd beaten it out of him, we had to repent. He got saved again and came back. It was great. Funny thing is, is my parents are going through this. Kath's parents are going through this as well. I didn't know her or anything. I never knew we were going to cross paths in the future. But Kath's parents, and they had a group of families in their churches in Leeston and and, uh, in the denominational churches there that says, we want more. And they were on a quest, and all these families left that church and, and um, were going to these meetings, and then they ended up make it, starting the new life center there. And, and it was like, it all got birthed out of that. But it was like, we were all on that journey. Just seeing it happen, it was very real. God was being very real. The Holy Spirit was being poured out. People were getting saved left, right, and center. People were getting, just seeing miracles. They were seeing the demonstration of the Spirit happening in their lives. And it was, it was a crazy time. What came out of the, the, the um, charismatic re- Renewal was, um, the New Life Church stream came out of that. Um, uh, you had Peter Myra and Rob Wheeler. I, I talked to Peter Myra. I know him personally before he died. Um, just led the charge in that whole area, you know, the Pentecostal area. They did Majestic House in Christchurch, then planted churches all around the country. And um, I came in on top of that. I didn't see the start of it, but I got saved into that. CAF was part of the start of it. Um, so that was pretty exciting. We started seeing, like, the Pentecostal churches started to be seen as okay, valid, real for some people. <laughs> and then, then what happened is um, John Wimber. John Wimber and the Vineyard Churches. All of a sudden, that became a big thing. And it was like, you know, he was um, the healings and, and stuff, and they put out a lot of worship, you know, the old vineyard worship. And, and that began to shape our worship. Our worship started to change. Hey, talk about tension in the church. How many people likes a good old hymn? Hey, you like a good old hymn? I see that hand. We'll talk to you later. And yours, I'll talk to you. They started to change it. And it was quite crazy what was happening. So there was a period through there that John Wimber was well known and the church was doing things there. Then you had musicians like Dave and Dale Garrett. Um, They came through. And they, they set up a whole bunch of new worship and stuff. And it was actually simple stuff. It was, it was like very scripture from scriptures, which is always good. Ooh. It was from scripture. And so you'd be doing simple courses and simple, um, simple um, uh, worship that was easy to remember. So if you're around the campfire these days and you've got a guitar and you start singing, you know what you're going to sing? You're going to sing their songs because they're the ones you can remember. These days the words are so lot and there's so many words and they're all over the place and, and it's hard to remember them, eh? You need a confidence monitor, don't you? I see the singers sometimes. I, I always laugh. I give them a wink when there's no words on here and they, they're sort of pretending. Good pretenders, unless everybody does it, then it's trouble, eh? And um, the contemporary music, though, has its place. Okay, if we've got tension in this one here, oh, I like the old songs. Why don't we have old songs? Oh, I like the new songs. And the other day, I was um, talking to my four-year-old grandson, Mac. You know what his favourite song is at the moment? Brooke um, Liggett Woods' song, Honey in the Rock, Water in the Stone. Man are on the ground, everywhere I go, you are all that I need. You are all that I need. And he is so cute, my goodness. He was singing this with all his lungs the other night. And I'm thinking, that is cute. So he's embracing the worship of today. But in 20 years' time, he'll be embracing the new style of worship. 
And he'll have attention. I like the old song. I liked Honey in the Rock. See that? And it's like, but you know, when you're brought up in this generation, you just embrace this generation. Uh, the music Christian artists became common around the world. You know, it's like um, people like Keith Green. Anybody, Keith Green? Keith Green, I mean, he was gone before I came on the scene. He had died. But um, he, he introduced like a real worship atmosphere and a presence of God in, in a singing meeting. And uh, unbelievable book, um, No Compromise. Anybody read the book, No Compromise? If you want a good read, Dean, No Compromise. That's your next book. Read it. Yeah, audio. Do it, man. It is incredible. He got saved when he was on drugs. He was high when he got saved, and God used him in a powerful way. Now, he could have gone two ways. He could have gone secular musicians. But the guy that was signing him up says, look, mate, I would take you on, but I've got this other guy that's just probably a bit bit more on the edge. His name's Elvis Presley. Yeah, not many of us compare with Elvis. My singing's almost there. Then you had other, other singers like Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Steve Camp, Twyla Paris, come on, Twyla Paris, Imperials, Russ Taff, Whiteheart, Leon Patillo, and David Meese. There's a whole bunch of these guys that come through and change the music, which now we say is normal, but at the time, like, Caff and her sisters were cautioned, don't listen to too much of Twyla Paris, you know, that sort of music, and she was... Real sweet screecher. I don't even know. I didn't listen to her. I remember um, listening to Amy Grant and, and people saying, Amy Grant, be careful, you know. Yeah, don't listen to Amy Grant. And there was like a tension between these people are, are singing Christian songs in the secular world and, you know, does that fit in the church? And so there was a, you know, I, I, can, I remember it. It's like I'm not telling lies. I'm not, I'm not trying to, I didn't read this. I knew this. I saw this happen when I got saved. Be careful what you listen to. Now, for my little grandson, it's his normal that he hears Christian worship and he can just go ballistic on it and just go into the presence of God. Which leads us to the Toronto blessing. How many remember that term coming through? Oh, how many heads did that do in? Oh, that's all right, just me. That's good. So the Toronto Blessing, a term coined by British newspapers, refers to the Christian revival uh, and associated phenomena that began in January 1994 at the Toronto Airport Vineyard Church. In December 1994, Toronto Life magazine declared Toronto Airport Vineyard Church as Toronto's most notable tourist attraction for the year. Church is a tourist attraction. That is absolutely fantastic. And they said over the next five years or something, two and a half million people came through it. That's how you get a church building, folks. If we could get two and a half million through, and they just give a little offering on the way through, we've got our church built by the end of this year. So let's encounter God right now. Everybody lift? No. (laughs) So um, this is incredible. And then... This is what sort of happened. The Toronto blessing became synonymous with the charismatic Christian circles for terms and actions that included an increased awareness of God's love, religious eschacy, external observances of ecstatic worship, being slain in the spirit, uncontrollable laughter, emotional and physical euphoria, crying, healing, 
uh, from emotional wounds, healing from damaged relationships, and electric waves of the Spirit. Holy laughter as a result of overwhelming joy was a hallmark of the manifestation. I remember this one here, and I had to get my head around some of this stuff. We had one guy in church, he was just a young fella, a teenager, and you know, we'd be praying and we'd be crying, people laughing, people rolling on the floor. And that was crazy stuff, man. Your head's like, sheesh, is that real? This one young guy, he'd be sitting there and he's just, just wanting more of God, and next thing he starts jogging. And he's, and he's just jogging. And he jogs for an hour, just jogging. And you sort of talk, hey, Nathan. He's, like, he's just sweating and jogging. And it was like, mate. Crazy. We had people that were so shy. People that, you know, you look, look to the person beside you and think, is that one of them? That real shy person doesn't say much. We saw people leading prayer meetings that have never done that before. We saw people that, there's one guy that was just so shy and he was like, just so easily embarrassed. He just starts laughing, ridiculous laughing. And it's like, my goodness, that's God. That's God. When that person laughs like that, that's God. And we just saw that some crazy things happen. Uh, one time there's a preacher preaching and uh, he got the laughs. And next thing he's rolling around on the stage and he's quite a round man. And there was, I don't know whether, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. I'm thinking, this is crazy. He couldn't preach. Every time he got up to preach, he fell over again. And of course, everybody's laughing their heads off and there's no word. And it's like, hey, we need a word. We need a word. You know, we need to hear something. It's not you know, ridiculous laughing up here. It, it was doing my head in. I'm like, I don't understand this, but in my spirit it's like, I don't know, this seems to be, why would people put that on? It seems to be God. And so we had to go through that. So again, it, there was a real tension about, ah, oh, do I just let myself go on this? Because you think, okay, if I let myself go, then I might do something that embarrasses myself. So you hold back. And I know a lot of people did. A lot of people held back because it's like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and so we sort of, the old tripod. I'm not, oh! <laughs> but we saw some crazy stuff happen. So why do you, why do we need revival and why do I need reviving? That's the question you ask yourself. Why do I need reviving? For this reason. Pioneers become settlers and settlers become comfortable. All right. I, was, I watched a uh, movie one time, Hell on Wheels. Have we seen that one? That was a good bunch of movies, man. That was a good Netflix addictive one. And it was just about the um, Old West and they're taking land and, and building towns and you know, getting rid of the Indians and all that stuff. Not good. It was horrible. But Pioneers become settlers and settlers become comfortable. As a Christian... We can initially pioneer out of excitement or whatnot. And then we settle at a place. And the problem when we settle for a while, we become comfortable. And I just believe God's wanting to stir some lives up again. I feel that he wants to stir my life up again, so I'm not saying it's for you. It's, it's, this is actually for me. I hope some of you come with me on it. That would be terrible to do it by myself. You know how, you know, how many people have built a new house? You know, that first year, oh, I've got a new house. It's so exciting. This is, and people come in, oh, let's have a look at your new house. After a year, it's just a house. What's exciting for now is just whatever. You get a new car. Oh, I just can't. I just want to drive it all the time. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll drive there. Yes, I'll go there. Where you went? Oh, Nelson, yeah, I'll go there. Just because you want to drive your car. And then after a year, it's like, you can do it. I don't want to drive the car. You know how, how sometimes that happens? Does, it, does that happen with you? Yeah, good, it's good. I was hoping it wasn't just me. 
So what's revival going to look like? I think there could be some more like revival meetings with you know, speakers from overseas. We've got a lot of great speakers in the world now. But I believe that it'll come from the people, from you and I. I believe that the next, well, that's my, my sensing, is that it'll come from the people of God. You know, we, we relied on the best speakers, the Billy Grahams and the, and the Seymours and the, you know, the people that led it. We relied on them, but I, I believe God's wanting to rely on us now. And we, I believe we will see it when we actually start to really engage with the heart of God. And then it'll start to come from us. I had a text the other day from a guy. I met him at a Father's Day event that we did here three years ago. I knew him as a kid, as a young teenager. And I've been keeping in touch with him very loosely. I mean really loosely. Just every now and then, hi, how you going? Yeah, good, how are you? Good, and that's it. The other day, he, you know, we talked on the phone for a while. He rang and we just had a good old chat. And the next morning he says, Hi, my best friend, my best buddy friend. And I'm like, I says, ha ha, you've probably got a ton of buddy friends. And then he says, no, I haven't. And I'm going to catch up with him hopefully this week sometime. But it's like, okay, God, here's a guy that doesn't know it yet, but he's on a journey. And I'm on that journey with him. And somehow I just realized that this guy needs God. And uh, it's my responsibility to put the time in to connect him in and because I want him to meet you great incredible people I want to bring him along here to meet you guys and when he meets you guys he'll go oh okay I feel like I belong hey Jamie you've got to meet some decent people you know me and Nate and Dean and Mike yeah you've got to meet the weirdos so it's good I believe it's going to come from us from within the people for a hunger for us to connect. Um, these revivals came out of prayer. You know, the seven guys in Izuzu Street sitting there got smashed off their chairs. If you start reading the revival pre-stories, you'll see that often it happened, or probably all the time it happened, through intense prayer meetings where people just says they're just going after God. They're meeting together and going after God. How many of you find it hard to pray? Being really honest, how many people find it hard to pray? I, I find it hard to pray. I've got to make myself pray. I've got to get into prayer mode. And sometimes I don't even know what to pray. So I just speak in tongues. That's the best thing about speaking in tongues. It's like when you, you're on a blank, it's just like, just, just go tongues. It's all good. Now you know my secret when I'm not praying. I want to see that. I want to see God break out again. But there's a tension in that too. And what's that tension, do you know? There's a cost. The cost is our comfort. We, we are comfortable. It's like, I don't know how much time I've got to invest in other people's lives because I'm comfortable where I'm at. If you ask more, then I'm going to feel uncomfortable. But I'm not saying we need more of busyness. I'm saying more of God. Because when we carry more of God, then our hearts are for people. And the cost, when we see revival, you know, when these revivals came, people just came from everywhere and it's just full on. There's a cost. And that's our comfort. I suspect that we're going to see it come through our youth as well. Because in today's society, uh, there's, there's just a real lack of hope. And when there's a lack of hope, there's a lack of future. And I see it. You're talking to um, teenagers and that. And what do you want to do? I don't know. What do, you want to, what do you see for your life? I don't know. What work do you want to do? I don't know. I'll have a gap year. 
because they don't know what they want. But you know, hope and future is found in God when we connect with him. And so for our young people that are around, and there's some getting baptized today, there's three young ones getting baptized today. Flippin' fantastic. Because you're connecting to the right source for hope and future. What do these Bible characters have in common? So I'm closing out now. Can I have the, the band can come up actually? What do these, these characters have in common? Cornelius, Crispus, Lydia, the Philippian, Philippian jailer. And Stephanus. What do those five people have in common? Anybody know? Think of what happened to just the one that you know. What happened to the Philippian, Philippian jailer? He got saved and, and his household got saved. These are just five households in the Bible that got saved. I was going to read them, but it's like, man, I've got too many words. So I need to trim some words. When one person in a household gets saved, guess what? It is a catalyst for the whole household to get saved. You know, it's like sometimes we see a family, we see people and we think, oh, they're enjoying life too much to even want to consider God. But if one of them gets saved, if you befriend and encourage and love on one of them, you can win the household. Because God is after households. He did it in the Bible. The plan hasn't changed. Where's revival going to come from? A hunger for God. A saving of souls. And their households, which includes friends, includes workmates. You know, the households, you know, like, like I know with Cornelius, it was, his accomplices were there as well. So it's way bigger than just one person. Because the Philippian jailer was going to kill himself, remember? And Paul said, hey, we're here, don't kill yourself. And so he stopped killing himself. <laughs> took them home, got saved, and his whole household and his friends all got saved. I get excited about a God that's into that sort of stuff. You know, buildings are great, and it's great, it'd be great to have our own building and just get our two and a half million people through the church so that they can all cough up a little bit of money and give us our building, that would be awesome. But let's get a move of God going so that they want to come to something and take something away, because we don't want them to go away with nothing. When they add to our offering, we want them to go away with more of God so that they can start a fire somewhere else. It's not all about buildings and plans. It's about people and it's about households. That's how simple it is. I think we complicate it. We, 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 you know, I look at the setup here and the crew and that. You know what? The setup team don't do this so that you can be comfortable. Huh? The setup team do this because they are seeing a bigger picture. They're knowing that if we've got an environment that helps us to connect with God, we're going to connect with God better. We know that when people walk through the doors, it's not going to be a big empty hall. It's going to have like an environment, an atmosphere that they say, actually, I like this. I might come back. doesn't matter what part of the process we are part of. I've got a kids' church leader sitting right in front of me. I can't help but see you, Deb. You know, never underestimate what you're doing. You know, you're building the kingdom. Our kids love our kids' church. You're the representative for all of them. Love it. We've got pe- pe- families coming back because they want to come back to kids' church. That's what it's about. And sometimes we think the little bit that we do 
It's just a little, I'll just do my job. No, you're not. You're building kingdom. You're affecting households. And households matter in God because His Word says it. Why am I a Christian? This is is a question you can ask yourself right now. Why am I a Christian? Why am I doing this? Because sometimes we get a little bit comfortable. We've settled and we get a little bit comfortable. And it's like, why am I doing this? And there's three reasons. The first is that we have a very real relationship with God where God can talk to us. The second is we want to bring people into relationship with God. That is the most important thing. Not going to heaven. That's not the most important thing. Bringing others into relationship with Jesus. And the third one that God was that we mentor and disciple and help others grow and mature in their relationship with God. I wrote, I wrote those three things down, then I realized there's a common theme there. What was it? Relationship, relationship, relationship. It's all about relationship with Him, with us, with others, to bring them in to this place, not this place, into the kingdom of God, into relationship with God. You know, we've got three, three new Christians getting baptized. Now we're down to two. Two going two. And the reason for the other one is a very good reason, which I appreciate and respect hugely. We've got two new Christians getting baptized today. Isn't that fantastic? Clap, clap, clap. And then we've got four that are saying, I want more of God. I want to do this. They're excited. I want more of God. More of God. More of God. It's exciting what God's doing. I think this is a good reason to get excited about God. Can we stand, please? We're just, I'm just going to hand it over to Drake because I've, done my, I've had enough words. Thank you, guys. Great.